0: Good morning, all you folks across the street at the video venue and folks joining us online. I know Chad Ransom's our online pastor, and he wants to serve you in any way possible. It's so good to greet you and welcome you to this first weekend of 2016. Happy New Year to all of you. If you got a Bible, I want you to grab it and go with me to the New Testament book of 2 Peter. When you find 2 Peter, I want you to go to chapter 3 and hold that ready. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 in just a moment. I hope you enjoyed that brief look at uh, 2000. And fifteen, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're so glad to have you here, but I want you to know that what we're going to do at this part of the service is really different from what we normally do. This first weekend of the year, we usually do a kind of a state of the church weekend where we talk about uh, just things that are important for our church in the in the past, the present, and the future. and so, I hope that uh, you will be blessed by being here today, but I hope also you'll come and worship with us again next weekend so you can see what things are like when it's a little bit more normal. That was a good video from 2015. As I think about the year, it was a pretty good year of ministry here at Mount Pleasant. Normally I would have some statistical information for you to break that year down, but I didn't want to spend time doing that this morning. I'm going to provide that information to you and make it available a little bit later in the month. And You'll know about that when you have the opportunity to see it. I do know that that's an important thing to a lot of you. You like to see the numbers and things. Let me just give you a couple of of uh, things. First of all, as far as 2015 goes through uh, the third week of December of 2015, because that's all the information that was available to me this week, our average weekend attendance was an even 4,000 here. And the way that breaks down, you can see it there on the screen, a little over 3,500 on campus. And our online campus just blew up. This past year, and I'm shocked every week at how many people join us on online from how many different places, not just around the country, but oftentimes around the world. We did not have one of our stronger years when it came to uh, baptisms and additions. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. Financially speaking, it's hard to give a definitive statement on the year because we don't operate on a calendar year when it comes to our budget. We operate on a fiscal year that begins on July the 1st and goes through June the 30th. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to to talk about it in relation to the calendar year, but for the 2015-2016 budget, we put together a pretty aggressive budget, and if you follow your bulletin on the back and you look at the numbers there each week, you know that for the most part we've been running a deficit with regard to that budget when it comes to our giving versus the budget, but that's a little deceptive because when it comes to our giving versus our actual expenses, which is a much more important thing, we're really in a positive position. We're very healthy and in strong position financially speaking. I've really believed for a long, long time that one of the greatest uh, strengths of our church is the generosity of our people. That doesn't, I don't think that happens by accident. We talk very specifically and deliberately about what it means to be a good steward and to be generous every year and uh, many of you follow up on that. I say many of you because I think probably we still have a long way to go, and we can do even better, but uh, your financial generosity has opened the door to all kinds of ministry opportunities, both locally and globally, and that's a, a great, great thing. I, I'll have some statistical information for you on the year available later in the month. Let's spend some time talking about now. You know, I don't, I don't get uh, nervous or anxious about preaching very often, In fact, almost never. I've been doing it a long time. And that's the case even when I'm preaching about a difficult or a sensitive topic. And the reason why is because I have confidence in the Bible. I don't stand up here on the weekend to tell you what I think about anything. Nobody really cares about that. I stand up here on the weekend to try to help you understand what God says about life and living, what the will of God is for all of us. And so I don't get nervous or anxious about preaching very often, but I I felt anxiety for some reason preparing for this weekend, and I think that's mostly because I just feel, if I'm going to be honest with you this morning, I just feel a, gener- a general sense of restlessness about where we are as a church and about where I am personally as a leader, and I want to talk to you about that this morning from the perspective, or maybe I should say from principles that are found in Second Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 15. And so if you've got your Bible open there, I want to invite you here across the street, wherever you might be, to stand with me like we always do in reverence and respect for God's Word as we make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service. And I want you to follow along as I read what may or may not be a familiar passage of Scripture to you. I'm going to read 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 15. Peter says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Okay, may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his words. You can be seated. Before we go any further, let me just tell you real clearly up front that it's not my plan to explain this passage in detail like I normally do when we read from the Bible. I told you this weekend's a little bit different. Um, Next weekend, we'll begin our first sermon series of the new year, and it's called Rediscovering Jesus. And what we're going to do for four weeks is we're going to look at four different scenes in the life of Jesus found in the Gospels, and use those four different scenes to learn or remind ourselves who Jesus is, why he came, and most important, what he has to offer to ordinary people like you and me. I think it'll be a great series. I think it'll be a great time to invite a friend. If you've been wanting to invite somebody to come and worship with you at Mount Pleasant, that would be a great time to do that. And then after that, we're going to spend seven weeks going verse by verse by verse through Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in a sermon series called Dear Church, because if you're familiar with that passage of Scripture, what happens there are, are, are we find seven letters written to seven different churches, and they're powerful, they're powerful passages of Scripture, and I know it's going to be a powerful study for all of us but this morning we're gonna do things a little different. When I study my Bible, I look at it verse by verse, line by line, and oftentimes word by word. But when I just read my Bible, and I'm talking about just reading it devotionally, oftentimes I just notice truths or principles. Maybe a word would be truisms, and that's the way I'm gonna use this passage this morning. You know, one of the reasons why I think I feel this restlessness is just based on, you know, how quickly the world is changing around us and how different the world has become recently. I'm not just talking about changing in terms of technology, I'm talking about everything. Families are changing, values are changing, society and culture is changing, our idea of right and wrong and what's moral and immoral is changing, our ability to be kind to one another and to be civil to one another is changing. The world is a different place in that there's a growing hostility in our world, in our country today towards Christians and Christianity and people today are anxious and afraid like no other time that I can remember as an adult about all the different things and all the different threats that, face, that we face around the world. And the question in the midst of that change is, how is the church supposed to respond? And how does this church respond? And that's where this passage from Second Peter chapter 3 comes into play, because when I look at that passage I just read, what stands out to me just in this context are two big, broad principles that I think we need to understand. And the first one is this. I know you don't have an outline in your bulletin insert like you normally do. You just have a blank page there. But if you want to take some notes, you can just write down a number one. And let me give you the first principle that I see here in this passage. It's we need to live our lives with perspective, with everything changing so dramatically around us. And with waking up every day to it seems like in some way a new world, we need to live our lives with perspective. Peter began by saying, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now, the first thing I need to say is that these words are very specific for the passage. We always need to read and study our Bible in context, and these words are very specific for this passage, and you see that if you read the entire chapter. You don't even have to have it explained to you. It's that clear. Peter's telling his readers that God is patient when it comes to his ultimate plan, then they should not mistake or confuse his patience with him being slow or him being disinterested in what's happening in the world today. God's patient when it comes to the return of Christ, and God's patient when it comes to his ultimate and final judgment of all things. But beyond that, you can also see in those words a principle about living with perspective. Peter says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now, when he says a day is like a thousand years, he's basically saying, "Don't overestimate the importance of a single day." I don't know what it is about us, but it just seems to be a part of our human nature that sometimes we make things bigger than they really are. We make the day bigger than it really is. We make events bigger than they really are, and so what we're being reminded of here when it comes to living with perspective is that we shouldn't overestimate the importance of a single day or maybe even a single event. Understanding that is a part of living with perspective. The late Dean Smith, who was the basketball coach at the University of North Carolina for so many years, once said, if you make every game a matter of life and death, you'll be dead a lot. And there's a lot of truth to that, a lot of truth to that. I read that quote this week and I realized that I've died a lot over the past 35 years because I've always viewed the weekend like that. I've always viewed the weekend services as a matter of life and death. There's a good side to that and a bad side to that. But the bottom line is we need to live our lives with perspective. And the first thing that means is don't overestimate the importance of a single day. But that's not all there is here. That's just one half of what it means to live with perspective. Peter said, a day is like a thousand years, and then he went on to say, a thousand years are like a day. And that second statement, a thousand years are like a day, reminds me that while we shouldn't overestimate the importance of a single day, we also need to understand that every day matters in our lives. Every day matters. that means what we do each and every day of our lives matters. What we do as believers, every day matters. What we do as believers individually and what we do as believers collectively as the church, every day matters. And I'm not contradicting myself here. I'm simply explaining what it means to live with perspective based on this principle that we see in first, or Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Let me reduce it to real simple terms and say it like this. Living with perspective means that we don't live for the moment, but we absolutely must live in the moment. We don't live for the moment, but we live in the moment. I tried to think of a Bible verse that describes what it looks like for Christians to live in the moment, and the best one I could come up with was Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, but When Paul writes that letter, he's a prisoner, and literally he doesn't know what tomorrow holds. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die, and so he's kind of having a debate, an internal debate with himself about whether it's better for him to continue to live and serve God in the world or to die and to be face-to-face with the Lord in heaven, and he comes to this conclusion in verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, and we see what it means to live in the moment in that phrase. It means... To live is Christ. Every day that we live, we represent Christ. We promote Christ. We honor Christ. Let's think about it, this whole idea of living with perspective from the standpoint of our text that we read, 2 Peter 3:8 through 15. In verses 10 through 3, Peter basically tells us how the world will end. He says there's going to be fire. The heavens are going to be laid bare. He says the earth is going to be destroyed. But here's the problem. We don't know when it's going to happen. It could be tomorrow. It could be the next day. It could be next week, next month, next year. It could be a hundred years from now. There's no way of knowing. But instead of just saying, well, since everything is going to be destroyed and there's no way I can know when it's going to happen, it doesn't matter how I live or what I do. Instead of saying that... Peter goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And then he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And then in verse 14, he says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, talking about at peace with God. What's Peter saying there? He's saying, don't live for the moment, live in the moment. Live in the moment. Live every single day like it counts, because every single day counts for all of us. You know, I don't watch a lot of sports on television. I used to. I, I've always loved sports, and I still do, but I, I get bored with watching it on television, and so I don't watch a whole lot of it anymore. But... I have ESPN, so I watch SportsCenter because I like to know what's going on across the world of sports without having to watch all the different games. But the problem with that is that every game on SportsCenter is reduced to just a handful of highlights, and you can be left with the impression that it was only one or two or three plays that made the difference in the game, but that's never the case because in every game, every play matters. Just like in life, every day matters, every single day. So we need to live that way by living in the moment, And we need to do that because that's the only way we can live our lives without regret. And it has to start now because time goes by so fast. You can't wait till tomorrow. You can't say, well, tomorrow I'm going to start making the most of my time. Tomorrow I'm going to start living in the moment. You can't do that because time goes by so fast. The older you get, the more you understand that. Sandy and I went to see the new Star Wars movie this last week. And uh, we got to the movie theater early because that's the way I like to do it. I like to get there and pick out my seat. And so when somebody comes along and says, can you move down? I say, absolutely not. I got here early so I can sit right here. Maybe you should think about that next time. That's okay everywhere but church, by the way. So we got there early and I sat and watched the empty theater fill up mostly with younger people who think that Star Wars is a movie of their generation. But it's not, because as I sat there in that movie theater, I realized that I was 19 years old when I saw Star Wars for the first time. I was 19 years old, and then I blinked, and I'm 57 years old watching The Force Awakens. How many even know what I'm talking about? You can't say, you can't wait, you can't wait till tomorrow to make the most of your life. You can't wait till tomorrow to say, I'm going to make sure that I live in the moment every day because every day counts, because time goes by so fast. And you can't do that because you know what the truth is, none of us has the hope or the promise of tomorrow, not a single one of us, not to try to be too grim in the new year. But here's an immutable truth of life. You don't have the promise of tomorrow and neither do I. Life is that uncertain. I saw Star Wars when I was 19 years old. In the summer of 1977, I saw it with my best friend from Houston, a guy named Ken Lewis. I moved to Houston uh, in 1975 with my family. I had about uh, six weeks left in my junior year of high school, and I went to a great big school, much bigger than the school I went to in Oklahoma, and then I went my entire senior year. And because I was there in that big school for such a short period of time, I only really got to know a handful of people. I can't even remember 10 names of people that I went to high school with in Texas. But my best friend was a guy named Ken Lewis. And uh, we were both home from college during the summer of 1977. We went to see that movie. Ken Lewis was a wonderful guy. We both got married about the same time. Both have children about the same age, except he has two boys and I have a boy and a girl. Ken Lewis did not even make it to his 30th birthday before he was diagnosed with leukemia and died. We don't have the promise of tomorrow. Time goes by by so fast and none of us has the promise of tomorrow and that's why it's so important to live every day in the moment because every day counts. And so because of that I'm just not satisfied or content to come to the end of a year and say it's been a pretty good year of ministry at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. Our expectations should be much higher than that. Our expectation. If you were to go to our website and you were to go to the About Us page, you would find a section of words there that begin like this, Welcome to Mount Pleasant Christian Church. And in that section, you would find what we call our vision and our mission and our strategy. Those are three really foundational, crucial things to us when it comes to who we are as a church and what our goals are in this world. Our vision is to be a church that is locally focused and globally engaged with an undeniable influence for Christ. That's the vision statement that the elders of this church came up with several years ago, to be a church that's locally focused, globally engaged with an undeniable influence for Christ. Our mission is something that you would be more familiar with. Our mission is to change the world, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. Since we are locally focused and globally engaged with this desire to have an undeniable influence for Christ, we need to be about the business of changing the world and doing it for Christ. We're not a social organization. Doing it from a spiritual standpoint, changing the world, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. And then we say that we have three... Main strategies for accomplishing that mission and that vision. And those three main strategies are compelling worship. Compelling worship, what we do right now on the weekends. This, this event that's happening right now that we're a part of. The second thing we say is relational discipleship. I'll talk to you more about that in just a moment. And the third thing we say is we have this strategy of serving others across the street and around the world. Compelling worship, relational discipleship, and serving others across the street and around the world. We say compelling worship because the word compel has the idea of of giving you a sense that you need to respond. I'm compelled to respond. I'm compelled towards some kind of action. It's an irresistible thing for me. And so the desire of our heart is to have weekend services where you walk out the door compelled to some kind of change in your life, Compelled to answer God's call on your life in some way. Compelled to say yes to God in some way. That's the desire of our heart every weekend when we worship together. And then we say relational discipleship. And that just means that we really believe and are committed to the truth that spiritual growth and transformation can happen in a significant way in community with other people. In community with other people. And when I say that, I'm talking about the ministry of small groups in our church. We call them home groups, small groups in our church. All throughout every week, we have small groups that meet in homes around our community. We have 8, 10, 12, 14 people come together for an hour, an hour and a half, and they spend time together in study and prayer and fellowship and encouragement and A variety of different things. Now, this is, in one sense, a relatively new thing for us to focus our attention on, but in another sense, it's not new at all. When I came here 14 years ago, there was a pretty strong small group. Ministry emphasis in the church, but over time it began to dwindle. And people, uh, you know, would say things like, Well, I've been in a small group for a while now, I'm going to take a break, and then never got back involved in a small group. And so we looked at how we can uh, accomplish the desire to help you experience spiritual growth in your life outside of the weekend services. And we created a ministry plan called The Journey. You remember that, the journey, and I really loved the journey, and at that time, we talked about focused discipleship instead of relational discipleship like today. The journey gave you the opportunity to kind of diagnose where you were in your life, spiritually speaking, and then gave you four different paths that you could walk down to grow in your spiritual life, a path of growth, a path of community, a path of healing, and a path of service. I loved everything about that ministry plan except one thing, and the one thing I didn't love is that most of you... Never chose to take advantage of it. I'm not saying that to criticize. I'm just saying that as a reality. For whatever reason, it just never got any traction here in our church. And so sometimes you have to say, you know what? Something's not working, so we need to do something different. And we decided to go back to that emphasis of small groups and change from focused discipleship to relational discipleship and encourage you to get connected in a small group. We've tripled the number of small groups we have. Since we began this new emphasis, we've kind of done it under the radar a little bit because we're lacking in leaders. We need people who are willing to step up and be leaders in small groups. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to be a leader. We'll train you and equip you in every way to be able to lead and facilitate a small group. And we need you to be a part of that. You need to be a part of it. You might say, "Well, I don't need to be a part of it. I'm connected to the church." And to say, "And I'd say back to you, you need to be a part of it so you can help other people get connected to the church. It's not always about you and what you can get. Sometimes it's about what you can give." My son Andrew, his whole role on staff here has changed from a young adult pastor to a discipleship pastor, and he's really embracing this role of leading this relational discipleship ministry. But we're going to need your help. And then we say we serve others across the street and around the world, and I think you understand that that's been a big part of our church identity for a long, long time. None of, all of these strategies are wonderful, they're great, they're tremendous, but they won't work apart from your commitment and involvement, and it's really pretty simple. Here's what I'm asking from you. I'm asking from you to make a commitment to worship, to grow, and to serve. That doesn't sound like too much to me to ask somebody who says that they love God, and He's the first priority of their life. To make a commitment to worship, to grow spiritually, and to serve. We don't need to change anything about those, th- those, those strategies because I think that they're, they're great. I think that they are important, and that's where we need to be. We just need to raise the level of our commitment to those things. But here's something new that we need to do in 2016. Uh, We're beginning a new ministry at Mount Pleasant in 2016 called Impact, an impact ministry. In fact, that's going to be our word as a church for 2016 and beyond, the word impact. That's going to be our word. You're going to read that and hear that a lot in the days to come. I'm already... Uh, looking for uh, uh, something, someone to add to our staff to serve in the role as impact pastor to help us do this. We're just talking about looking for new ways and more ways that we can impact, make a spiritual impact on our community and the world. Impact has been a part of our DNA for a long time, even if we haven't described it that way. That's why we built the community life center uh, across the street, because we wanted to impact our community in the area of, of something that is really important to most people today and that's sports and recreation and wellness and those kinds of things. That's why we built our community ministry center a few years ago back on the south part of our parking lot so that we can impact our community by providing food to people who need food and clothes to people who need clothes and other basic necessities of life. We do that we, we realize that kind of impact through our local mission partners and through our global mission partners in a number of different ways, but we can do more, and we need to do more as we move forward. We need to expand some of the things that we're doing currently, and we need to create new opportunities to make an impact as we move forward. Let me give you just a few ideas or a few examples of what I'm talking about, and time does not allow me to go into any real detail on any of these things, but let's just talk about the kind of impact that we make in our community ministry center. Every week, every week we serve anywhere from 275 to maybe 325 individuals or families through our community ministry center, providing with them, them with food and clothing. And, and by the way, I can't. I want to go on record as saying is that I am so proud of our staff that serve over there, and all of you who volunteer over there, you are tremendous. Tremendous. The work that you do is tremendous, and it's so needed. Let's celebrate those people just for a moment in our service. And let me tell you, we need more volunteers to serve in the community ministry center. We're doing a great job meeting the physical needs of people in our community. But we need to be more intentional when it comes to spiritual things and meeting spiritual needs. We need to make more of a spiritual impact through that ministry over there. That's not to say that anything we're doing is is not good. I'm just saying we need to do more in terms of our spiritual Impact. What we do over there happens primarily on Thursdays, and so moving forward, we'll call that Impact Thursdays, and we'll be looking for a way to make a greater spiritual impact on those people. Find a way to make them a part of our church family, if possible. Another example is we have an ongoing partnership with a mission in downtown Indianapolis called Shepherd Community, and we began to talk with the folks at Shepherd Community a while back, and they said, we want to identify an area in the greater Indianapolis area that is in serious need of physical and spiritual impact, and they helped us identify an area called Concord, which is just just a little outside of downtown Indianapolis, and we have begun to move forward with a new ministry, a new project called Impact Concord. We began a little bit over the Christmas holiday with a giving tree partnership through Shepherd Community to the people who live in that Concord area, and our eventual goal is to create a church in that area from Mount Pleasant Christian Church, Impact Concord. You'll be hearing more about that in the coming days. I'm sure most all of you know that there's a growing population of Chin people on the south side of Indianapolis. These are people who come to the states from western Burma. They found refuge in the United States after years of being targeted by the Burmese military and becoming victims of things like forced labor and arbitrary arrest and worst, rape and torture and even, in some cases, execution. We've had a ministry to Chin refugees almost from the beginning of their arriving in Indianapolis. But we need to increase that ministry by creating more opportunities for them to have worship with the Lord and for them to have spiritual community. And so we are welcoming new Chin services on our campus beginning in 2016 and discovering how we can increase our Chin partnership. We'll call this Impact Chin I've been talking for a while now with our serve pastor, Chad Ranson, about how Mount Pleasant could be instrumental in planting churches, not locally, but planting churches in parts of the country that are unchurched or even in some needy parts of the world, even in foreign countries. These are just a handful of Of examples. There are so many more, but we need to increase the level of impact. God has blessed our church significantly, and the Bible teaches us that to whom much is given, much will be required. And we need to be able to meet that responsibility. I'm going to be wide open when it comes to this idea of impact and wide open to all kinds of possibilities. Uh, You know, one of the things that is so clear to me as I stand here on this first, I stand here on this first weekend of, the t- of 2016, is that church has changed so dramatically since I began back in 1980, and really now today, there's no set, there's no one set way of doing church today. It's wide open. We're discovering that you can do church in a number of different ways. One of the biggest things that happened in the past several years when it comes to the American church is the multi-site model. You may not know what that means, but that basically is a model where there's one church in multiple locations. That's not happened a lot in our community here in the Greenwood area, but it will. It will happen. There will be large churches around the greater Indianapolis area that will open up campuses here in the Greenwood area. And there's a lot of people in Greenwood that need to be saved. I'm just telling you, it's just... I thought at one time that it was going to be kind of a fad, but it's here to stay. I've been following this for many, many years. I have a brother who serves in a church that has a multi-site model. He's the, the pastor of one of their campuses, one of their... I don't remember now if it's six or seven different campuses in the area where they're located. I read this week that 62% of American megachurches, a megachurch is any church in the U.S. that averages more than 2,000 people in weekend attendance, 62% of American megachurches are now multi-site, up from 46% five years ago. Now, I have thought about this and even researched this quite a bit over the years, and I will be honest with you this morning and tell you that I've never really felt led to pursue this approach to doing ministry in the past for a number of different reasons, and here are my reasons. Number one, I'm not really believed that it was necessary in a place like Indianapolis. I think that there are places in our country where it is necessary. I think where my brother serves is a good example of that, but never have really viewed it as being so necessary in the Indianapolis area, because everywhere you turn in Indianapolis, there are churches. Everywhere you turn, and as I said, there's still a lot of lost people, even with all the churches, but I, I, just, I just always had a sense that, that it, it would be difficult to do that because of that, especially for an independent Christian church like Mount Pleasant because we have sister churches all over the city. There's, a, there's not a location that we could go to and open up a, a, a new campus where we wouldn't be right next door to a church that's just exactly like ours and oftentimes a mega church that's just exactly like ours. Another reason why I've been hesitant is because, you know, I've not always believed in the model of the multi-site, the way it unfolds, and here's what I mean by that: Oftentimes, a large church will open up a campus in a, in a new area, and they do it under the under the the uh, the pretense, I guess, of reaching lost people. But all they end up doing is just taking existing people from existing churches, and it devastates some of the churches in those local areas. And I just never felt like that was, you know the way the Great Commission should unfold. The Bible says we're to be fishers of men, not rearrangers of the aquarium. <laughs> and please don't, please, please don't mistake or misunderstand my words. I'm not cr- being critical of somebody who does this. I'm just telling you, I'm just sharing my thoughts with you this morning. Do you understand that? I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just sharing my thoughts with you this morning. Another reason why I've always thought that the multi-site model might be difficult for us is because I look around at our campus. Just think about our campus for a moment. I'm talking about our 70 plus acres of property and all the buildings we have on this campus and how in the world, I wonder how in the world could we reproduce this someplace else without the cost being exorbitant. And so all those things kind of enter into my thoughts, but it's a possibility, nothing is beyond the realm of possibility. One of the things that I've noticed, though, with the rise of the megachurch and the multi-site model of the megachurch, is that there's a decline in America today in small churches that's faster and greater than at any other time in history. I read an article this past week that suggested that over the next 10 years that there could be as many as 100,000 small churches close their doors in America. And I don't believe that's far-fetched because in my work with the Solomon Foundation, the Solomon Foundation helps churches, plants churches, helps churches get to the next level. We see a lot of churches that are shutting their doors across the country. And let me tell you something that's in my heart. I have a heart for small churches. And I have a heart for small church preachers because I spent some time... In that role in my life, my first church never was a large church. My second church I went to only had about 125 people on an average weekend. Now it grew to be a significant church, a large church, but it didn't happen overnight. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be a preacher in a small church. And I would love to find a way to be used by God as a church to help small churches that are in decline get new life and new vision when it comes to their ministry and the communities that they're located in. And this has just grown over the years. Over the past few years, I've had conversations with the leaders from two different churches that approached me and were interested in talking about a merger of sorts because they recognized that their churches were dying And so we had a leadership conversation, and I was really clear in the leadership conversation. I don't want you to think I'm being heavy-handed, but I was really clear in the conversation in saying that we would not have an interest in just, you know, partnering with you so that we could give you money so that you could continue to do the same things you've always done and not get any results. If there was going to be a partnership of sorts with us, you would need to become a part of us. You would need to be willing to become a part of us. And that means that you have to give up who you are today. And sadly, on both occasions, the leaders of those two churches left the conversation because holding on to their dying identity was more important to them than having a productive future. And that's sad to me And so I'm praying, when I think of the idea of impact, and I read another article recently that talked about how in the future, moving forward for churches, church mergers are going to become a significant part of what we see happening in our country. I'm praying that beginning in 2016, God might open the door for this kind of impact, and we might be able to help small churches become relevant again. My goal, basically, I'm open to anything, folks. My goal is to make the word impact synonymous with Mount Pleasant Christian Church. Let me talk to you for a minute about a challenge that we face that's very real. Our worship center seats exactly 1,200 people. Where we are right now, we seat exactly 1,200 people. We hold four services every weekend, three of them here and one across the street in the video venue at 1045. Primarily, we started that service because we needed to create some space in this room. And I appreciate the folks who worship across the street at the video venue every week, and I hope you enjoy those donuts. (laughs) I looked at our statistics from this past year, and as it pertains solely to the number of people inside this room on the weekend, we average about 580 on Saturday night, so we've got a lot of room on Saturday night, but honestly, there's a lot of folks who just won't go to Saturday night church for whatever reason. You just won't do it. I go. I'm paid to go. I'm kidding. I love those folks on Saturday night. At 9 o'clock, the average is around 800. At 1045, it's around 915, 920, somewhere in that area. There's an old adage when it comes to church growth with regard to your worship space that says when you're 80% full, you're full, which means we're full at 960 people. We are pretty much or have been pretty much bumping up against that for a long time now. When we have big weekends like our recent Christmas service, we're at capacity. There's nothing we can do on this location to make that any bigger than it is. There's nothing we can do on Easter weekends to make more space for people beyond what we already do. We need to address this issue so that the church can continue to grow in the future well beyond when I'm here to be the pastor. I need to take the leadership responsibility to make sure that the next guy has the resources he needs to continue to reach people for Christ. I'm not trying to be overly hard on myself, but I don't think I've provided good leadership in this area. And here's why, because there's a leadership axiom that I'm aware of that says, if you're always talking about the same problem, then you're not leading. And I've been talking about this with people for a while, but never doing anything. And so moving forward, we need to make a plan we need to decide on a plan. We have four basic options that are ahead of us. I'm going to lay them out for you this morning. I don't have time to comment on each of them. They each have pros and cons. The first one is we can add a service or services. That might seem like it's the simplest no-brainer explanation or, or excuse me, not explanation but answer, but it's not that simple. Number two, we can find a way to expand this current worship facility. And I'll tell you honestly that for most of the time I've talked to people about this, I didn't think that was possible. I do think it's possible today. The third thing we can do is we can build a new worship center. We got lots of space across the street on the field of dreams. We could build a whole new worship center. It could be as big as we wanted it to be, and it could look exactly like the way we wanted it to look. But it would cost a lot of money. The fourth one is to embrace the multi-site model that I talked to you about just a moment ago and what that might look like for us. I can't stand here this morning and tell you that I know exactly which one of these options we'll pursue, but I can tell you that a decision will be made in 2016. I'll talk to you about it. You'll know. I want you to understand whatever option we choose will carry a cost for all of us, and it will involve for all of us some level of change. So I need you to listen to me real closely and carefully right now. We need to be willing to embrace whatever change that is. Because when a church loves its model, and when I use the word model, I'm talking about the way we do things today. When a church loves its model more than its mission, that church is in trouble. And we need to understand that. Because it's not just about you and me today, it's about what God can do tomorrow as well. But having said that, I want you to know that you don't have to be afraid of that change. And you can trust me. Do I sound like a politician when I say that? <laughs> I apologize for that. But you can trust me. You can trust me. There are fundamental things about church that I'm committed to that will never change. Regardless of what the model looks like, those things will never change. And I think those are the, those are the very things that cause many of you to love Mount Pleasant Christian Church. You can trust me. I hope that I've earned that trust over the past 14 years. But it will require a cost and some level of change for all of us. On your insert, if you want to write down a number two, I would say write down number two, and let me give you the second principle I see in this passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, and that's this principle, prepare for the best. Back in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, Peter says, but in keeping with his promise, talking about God's promise, we are looking forward, forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Peter's really clear in this passage about what's going to happen to the world. He says everything's going to be destroyed, but in spite of that, he said we need to prepare for the best. He says someday there's going to be an end to this world, but there's also going to be with that end a new beginning, and everything is going to be perfect, so... Prepare for it. The Bible teaches us over and over again that the future is bright for God's children. So that means for you and me as believers, the future is bright for us regardless of the way things look in the moment, regardless of the trouble or the trial or or the fear and anxiety that we might experience in the moment, the Bible promises us that the future is bright for us. so we need to make the most of every day because every day counts and we need to look forward to the future with Optimism focused on the promises of god so i'm going to ask you to do something for me i'm going to give you a challenge as we bring this to a close this morning i'm going to challenge you in 2016 to make the commitment to give to have a first things first approach to god and the future and here's what i mean by that i'm just going to ask you to make sure or to make the commitment rather that you're willing to give the first things in your life to god If you say that you love God more than anything else, that he's first priority in your life, then this shouldn't be a difficult thing. And here's what that would look like. I'm going to ask you to give the first minutes of each day to God, moving forward. The first minutes of each day in in Bible reading, devotion, and prayer, begin your day with God. It'll make an incredible difference in your life. I'm going to ask you to give the first day of the week to God. And what that looks like is making weekend worship a priority. We say the first day of the week. We know that's Sunday. We have Saturday night church also, but you understand what I'm talking about. I know that the week is busy. I know that your life is busy. Depending on what season of life you're in, it it could be crazy if you have young children. But it's hard for me to believe that we can't find an hour and 15 minutes out of our week to devote to worship on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning. I'm going to ask you to give the first part of your income to God. That's not new because I've been asking you to do that for a long time. We talk about money openly and honestly here and what it means to be a good steward. And a good steward gives the first fruits of their income back to God, tithes and tithes and offering. What we're going to do moving forward as a church and how we want to impact our world is going to have a price tag connected to it. It'd be naive to think any different. I'm going to ask you to give the first priority of your heart to God. And what I mean by that is I want you to make sure moving forward, that you make God first in every decision that comes across your, your life, your family. I'm going to ask you to give God the first month of this year. And what I mean by that is I'm going to ask you to be willing, and there's no way for me to know whether or not you do this or not. This is totally between you and God, and it wouldn't make me think better or worse of you depending on your response, but I'm going to ask you to think about giving Him the first month of this year, and from today on forward to be willing to Fast and pray throughout the month, praying for the issues in your personal life and your family, but also praying for this church. Fasting is an intimidating thing to a lot of people because we think about going without food and that frightens us. Honestly, that makes us anxious. But let me give you the simplest explanation of fasting that you'll ever hear in your life. Here's what fasting is. Fasting is being willing for a period of time to move something out of your life to make more room for God in your life. That's all it is for a period of time to be willing to move something out of your life to make more room for God in your life. That's what fasting is. And it may involve food, but it doesn't have to involve food. I'm certainly not thinking that we would go without eating for an entire month. It could be it could be related somehow to food, though. It could be a portion of food. It could be another thing that is a big part of your life that you're willing to move out of your life for a time so you can make more room for God. It could be social media. It could be something that you drink, it could be an activity that you involve yourself in, moving it out of your life for a period of time to make more room for God. And when you make more room for God, you pray. You make a list of the needs in your life. I know every one of us has personal needs in our lives and our families that we need to devote to prayer. But I would also ask you to pray for God's protection and blessing and favor and direction on your church, your church right here at Mount Pleasant. And I would ask you to pray that God would bring one more, one more person to this church. We didn't do a good job this past year in reaching people who are lost. We just didn't, not in relation to the size and the influence of our church. We need to do better. Let's begin by praying. If every one of us made a commitment to pray for one more and God answered that prayer, it would be significant. The first responsibility of a church is to make disciples... And discipleship begins by reaching people who are lost. We need to do that. You know, I've been serving God in the ministry of the local church, and we'll we'll close with this, since 1980. And, And I look back at 2015, and I'll tell you, personally, it's one of the most difficult years of my life. And there were a number of different reasons why too many to burden you with here in the moment. And so I was very introspective about this year as it came to a close. I was very anxious for 2016 to begin and put 2015 in the rearview mirror. One of the things I realized, one of the conclusions I came to in my introspection is that I'm not finished. I'm not finished serving the Lord. I hope you're not. I read recently that John Wesley, who is a great Methodist preacher for so many years, once said, I have nothing, or excuse me, he said, I am immortal until my work is done. That was his perspective about his life. I am immortal until my work is done. In other words, he's saying, I don't have anything to fear in this world as long as I'm engaged in fulfilling God's call for my life. But here's the deal. The older I get, the older you get, the more focused we need to become. And unless God intervenes, the next 5, the next 10, the next 15, the next 20 years are going to happen, whether we have a plan for them or not. And so we need to make a plan. We need to make a plan that involves the principles that we talked about. We need to make a plan to live with perspective, which means we need to live in the moment. Every moment and every day counts in our lives, individually and collectively as the church. And we need to expect God to do great things in the future.